This presentation is from UX Australia 2016, held in Melbourne. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Um, it was actually seven years ago uh, last week that I first met this gentleman. Um, we had tea together, afternoon tea in the gardens in San Francisco uh, at the end of a weekend for me, my first trip to San Francisco. Uh, I'm very fortunate uh, to have maintained a friendship and I like to think of it as a friendship. Uh, he is a wonderful practitioner and a very reflective researcher and I'm really glad that he's made the trip here for UX Australia this year. So please join me in welcoming Mr Steve Portugal. Thanks, everyone. Uh, this is not, I'm not going to make you stand up and sit down and do things and talk to each other, except this is one thing. Uh, so a really lame pun visually to begin the talk. Uh, what animal is that? Shout it out. And who didn't know what a capybara was? All right. Go check out those YouTube videos of capybara in hot tubs. They're like, what, if you are ever stressed, just go watch one of those videos. They are the most... Chill. I mean, this whole trip that generated that picture was so that I could meet a capybara. Um, and now I'm sharing that with you. Um, so, yeah, and as Steve said, we're, you know, this is about the fundamentals. There's so much more. There's lots and lots and lots of material. I'm going to give you sort of three pointers to learning more outside what I'm going to cover today in this, in this shorter session. Um, I have a book called Interviewing Users that some people may know. You know don't put your hands up because I thought there was no more interactivity. So... Um, but beyond, beyond buying the book, which of course I would like everyone to do, the webpage at Rosenfeld Media has a lot of stuff for free, templates, examples. I'll reference a few of them in this talk. You can go and download them and repurpose them for your own projects. Uh, there's more talks and so on. Um, there's a longer version of this slide deck on SlideShare, so if you want to get it before uh, Don and Steve put it up, that's where you can go. Uh, coming soon, a new book. Uh, featuring at least, I don't know if, if Jerry's in the room, Dan is in the room, Dan is in this book. Uh, it's a book about war stories, the kinds of things that go wrong in, in field work. If you were here two years ago, I gave a talk about that. The book is coming out very soon. And then finally, uh, a podcast about user research, uh, talking to people inside corporations who are leading and developing these practices. And this is where a lot of the change in how user research is being done is happening, is kind of in the corporate structure. So check out Dollars to Donuts, that podcast. All right, so what we'll talk about today, I'll just dive right into that. Um, here's a question that often comes up. Well, what method? And there are so many different kinds of methods. Uh, the best answer to that is in this article by Christian Rohr. Uh, this, this diagram tells you a lot, but there's a, whole, there's a whole page there. So I think this is one of the best resources. He kind of breaks it down in a lot of different ways and talks about what are you trying to learn, what are you trying to accomplish, um, it's, it's, it's not quite, I mean, this stuff is much more nuanced than if your question is X, do Y, but it's the, it's the least bullshit version I've seen of trying to tell that story uh, in an actionable way. So I'll point you to that. Um, and I guess sort of an addendum to that is to think about when you're choosing methods and setting up what you're going to do to go do some research is that, that methods work together. Uh, so here's an old, so you can tell how old this is by, this is the, what uh, music applications are people using to manage their, uh, their libraries. So this is, like, this is sort of pre-streaming. It also is when, um, yeah, uh, Winamp and Music Max 
match jukebox were uh, just only slightly under iTunes. And anyway, we did this survey and we got some data to answer this client's question um, about the thing around sort of where their opportunity lay. But then we went out and visited people. So we combined surveys and in-context research. Um, in context, we saw the people that had iTunes had, and you can tell this is already a very old version of iTunes, the their music was managed. Like, we would t talk to people and say, and they'd say, oh, I love listening to digital music. And uh, we'd say, great, show us something. And we would get this little behavior. Uh, sure, okay, uh-huh, click, click, click. Uh, no, okay, wait, mm, uh, click, click, click. So they'd say it was great, and we would watch them sort of search for five minutes to find something like called untitled-untitled-.mp3. And they were like, see? See how great it is? Um, and the people with iTunes had you know, art, artwork for their albums. They had things labeled properly. They, and, they, and more importantly, they could access it. Like, here's this whole album. Here's this. Here's this collection. Uh, and so there were qualitative differences that, that this didn't reveal. This told you something about the market and the penetration at, at that moment in time. This told you something else. And my point isn't that the visits were better. My point is that these two pieces work together and you can make some bigger decisions by putting two pieces of, of methods together. Now, you can take all these different methods. Um, it's not just those two, right? It's not just qual, quant, survey, in-home. There's a lot of different things that you can do. But to think about you know, putting them together and kind of where you want to get to. So I'm going to talk about uh, sort of four chunks. This is how I think about sort of the process of doing research. I'm leaning heavily towards, uh, you know, as is my sort of orientation, uh, contextual qualitative methods. So going to where people are, interviewing them. But I think there's a lot of models that you'll see here that apply broadly to any sort of user research question. So who are the people we're going to be working with? What are we going to do with them methodologically? Doing it and then making some sense of the data. Um, and so we have other talks coming up today in this room that will dive into some of these sections and with more detail. I'm going to kind of touch on as much of this as I can, but you know, we have follow-ups that will go into more detail. So let's talk about this, this planning piece, like setting up the study. What is the study? What are we trying to do? What do we think the problem is? What's the opportunity? Why are we, why are we setting out to do this? Uh, so let me introduce sort of three different types of questions that, that, that go on uh, when, when I find research work starting. The, this is an actual deck from a client of mine. I've redacted anything that would make it interesting. Now it's just sort of generic. Um, but this was sort of a strategy deck that they put together. This is a San Francisco company that's, they're an entertainment technology company. They make the ingredients that, that are used in entertainment experiences. Uh, and so they had done some kind of study. And I like that one of the bullets on their, on their page is China, exclamation mark. There's no actual context there, but China. Um, so anyway, I'm, so my call-outs here are just kind of riffing. So here's the business question. The business question says, what does the business want to accomplish? So what new products and services might we start offering to help our partners monetize social networks and drive revenue? Or what entertainment activities in middle-class China that's growing so strongly should we be tapping into? Again, I'm making these up. Okay, so that's, that's a question about what the business would do. Here's a research question. So these are questions, again, I'm making up that you might ask in order to answer the business question. What motivations, what successes, what frustrations do users have of the current current products of our partners' products, or how is life changing in China? Uh, what are the technologies that are being embraced or that are being passed by? And then there is the methodology. 
So when you have a slide deck, it's very nice and clean, right? It's sort of what it sounds like I'm saying is start with your business question, then identify your research question, then select the appropriate research methodologies that will help you accomplish that. Um, that is not that, that basically never happens like that. And I think part of the job of planning research is figuring out what what inputs are you given because um, someone might come to you and say, we need you to, to do uh, 12 in-homes in three different markets with uh, owners of senior-age cats. And then you have to say, well, what is the thing that we're trying to learn? Oh, well, we want to understand blah, 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 blah. And what does the business intend to do with that? So you want to sort of move up or down that ladder to try to, to try to unpack those things. And even that I'm presenting as an ideal. I think often I'll go through entire programs and it won't be sort of till the end where we understand kind of more broadly, we have a, a shared understanding, even though we've you know, built a plan and executed it, that some of these things come into much uh, more clear focus kind of down the road. But I mean, one thing to take away is that the business question is not the research question. And that you want to you know, have different senses of each of these and understand how they relate to each other. And you're going to be handed part of one, and it's your job to kind of ask those other questions and start to build that system at the, before you start and kind of as you go through and kind of keep checking in on that. Uh, in terms of just framing the whole study, like what is it we're trying to learn? What things are we going to look at? And what are we going to, um, what are we going to see as, as needs? Uh, I often hear this phrase, pain points. Let's go learn what the user's pain points are, and then the implication is being like, and then we'll fix them. Um, and I think pain points are necessary, but they're not sufficient. And pain points as a lens can really limit you. Um, so here's a very silly example. Uh, on the right, uh, imagine you go out and uh, do a bunch of in-home research, and you see that people have drawers and drawers just overflowing with discarded technology that's gone obsolete. Well, if you take a pain point approach, you might say, well, we need to give people bigger drawers. Right? You're missing, you know, there's a much larger question there. Why? Why is that the case? The pain point is a, is a symptom. It's an instance of something. The more elusive thing is a, is a framing on what people's lives are about. I mean, obsolescence, the need to acquire new stuff, the fear of missing out of, you know, of gadget desire, all those things are much slippier and squishier, but important. And if you try to innovate around solving the pain point, you're not. You can only kind of create pain point solutions. Those are band-aids. Those are not breakthroughs. Those don't change kind of the, the paradigm. Um, and the thing with pains, pain points is that they're not always that painful to people. We see them as like, oh my God, we have to fix this. But people find things that make sense for themselves and kind of go with that. Um, the word satisficing is a great word to, as a researcher. When you see things that people are okay with, they're, they're good enough solutions and people are fine with them, that's a really important thing to understand. Uh, people, if the pain of adopting your solution in the future is greater than the pain that the lack of the solution causes, no one's going no one's gonna bother here. Um, the picture on the left there is a, a fax machine that's held in place, a, it's kind of jammed on top of that monitor by the tension uh, of the, the phone cable. It's just kind of held there. I mean, she needs a $1, uh, you know, go to Target and get a $1 cable that's, you know, another 18 uh, centimeters longer, and everything would be fine. It wouldn't be so, so imperfect and kind of, it's kind of tentatively uh, held there. 
for a lot of reasons, and we could, I could tell you her whole story, she's never going to do that. So we know what the solution is. The solution is available, and it's never going to be adopted. If we're thinking about creating a new solution to a problem that we see as a pain point, you know, I think you need to really check yourself when you see people's problems and think about what are people actually okay with. Um, and here's another sort of framing on how we gather needs and how we create solutions. So this is an ad campaign. This isn't how Microsoft actually develops products. Microsoft does spends a lot of effort into, into user research. Um, but this idea, and I think this is also very tempting if we're naive about research. Maybe this is your stakeholders kind of think this. That uh, we go out and talk to users and they say, you know what I'd really like in an operating system is a lower memory footprint. And you go, oh, never thought of that. Engineers, get to work. Lower the memory footprint. Ship it. Like, it's, it's a very tantalizing and sort of yet horrifying view of what the relationship is between people who have needs, people who understand those needs, and people who make things that address those needs. Um, so don't, don't get sucked into this, hey, we're just gathering requirements. That phrase sounds like you sort of take a rake and you just kind of pull these things together and bring them up. The, the things that people seem to need... We have to be careful if we think they really need them. The, people, the, the, the things that people tell us they need, we also need to be very careful about that. So this is all about kind of interpretation and, and making some strategic decisions based on these different kinds of signals. Um, so let me leave the big picture part of framing the study and get it into a little bit to the, the, the tasks of executing a study, whatever that study might be. Um, and the big point here... And this, is, uh, this can be upsetting for some people, not you guys. Um, who you learn from is not necessarily who you design for. So the default practice is uh, we make a thing for these people. Let's go, talk to, let's go talk to the users of our product. I was just doing this now with a, uh, a music streaming app. And for me to convince them, we needed to talk to people who loved music and were engaged in streaming as opposed to people that use our thing that are already subscribers to this thing, that wasn't, given what their goals were, it was more important to understand this other category that was more universal. Um, so thinking about who will give us the information that will help us make our design and product decisions is not the same as who are the people who are using our product. You can take a much broader view of it. Um, and so then there's just some examples here about uh, you know what. How could we broaden a sample? We could find rejectors. We could find former users. We could find competitor users. We could find people that should be a user based on some other profile but don't actually have any solution in this category, so we see what their workarounds are. And one goal you're trying to accomplish here is getting at different perspectives. So I happen, when you do a study, you often get people in that shouldn't be in the study. And, you know, that's, there's mistakes happen, and you learn interesting things from them um, because even though they may not have the need that you hope people will have or you're looking to address, they say something that everybody in your other category didn't say. And so the contrast, the, the, this is the opportunity for you to learn and you to understand how to frame this a little bit differently. Uh, and the cliche is whoever discovered water, it wasn't fish. Right? And so you want to, I'm not going to, I can't continue with the metaphor there, but you need to get yourself out of the fishbowl. Oh, there we go, Steve. That's really just brilliant. Everyone is tweeting that right now, I know. <laughs> That's not interactive, though. I'm not, I said I'm not going to be any more interactive. Okay, um, you need to have a plan for what you're going to do 
in the field especially. Um, I mean, any, any research needs a, a protocol, a plan, an interview guide, a discussion guide. You can call it whatever you want. For, for interviewing, I think the, the second bolt is the one I want to hit here. Um, questions you want answers to and questions you ask are two very different things. Right? And this is obvious, I think. You wouldn't go ask someone... Uh, you know, this is what do you want into something or what do you want into something else? You need to design this conversation so you can help them give you, again, the perspective, the insight that's going to drive the decisions. Um, so when you see blog posts on any publication whose name starts with UX, UX something, um, there's someone always writes, never ask the question this. The questions you should never say in user research. I hate those. There's always an opportunity to say all kinds of different things, to ask all kinds of different questions. It doesn't mean that the thing that you ask and the thing that, you, that they tell you is then the thing that you decide. So a classic one is don't ever ask people how much they would pay for something. No, that's not true. Don't make your pricing decisions based on little res- literal responses to the question, what would you expect to pay? People will talk about payments in a way that reveals their mental models. So you can ask lots of different kinds of questions. You have a lot of power to have a palette of questions that will help you answer the things that you want to learn. And, and that, that planning, that's, that's part of the enormous expertise of the researchers to figure out how are we going to talk about this People don't know about this. They haven't thought about it. They don't know that it exists on our platform. They don't care. They don't understand the difference. If you want to have a meaningful conversation with someone, you can't just ask those questions. You have to create the conditions whereby they can be informative and even reflective about it. And that's, there's a whole art to that, um, which is part of, the, that's part of our development in being able to do this work. You can think of a field guide just as, as kind of just having four chunks. Um, you know, setting up the setting it up. Here's why we're here. Doing all your 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 logistics and kind of uh, clarifications as to what this session is going to be about. Um, some deep dive into what it is you want to learn about. I think this third piece, these audacious questions. The more time you spend with people, the more audacious you can be. The more bigger picture you can ask them to to reflect on. You can't ask these questions at the beginning, and typically, um, but at the end, you can really get people to say what they think life would be like in five years, how their children are going to consume music differently. You're not looking for literal responses. You're looking for uh, this, this audacious permission you're giving them to reveal things that are more hidden. Um, and so here's an example. If you go to the Rosenfeld Media site for interviewing users, you'll, this is one of the pieces you can download. And so here's kind of the level of detail that I'll prepare. I'll write these different sections. I'll break them up by time. I'll put time codes on them, even though something like household interview is 14 minutes. That's ludicrous. I'm not sticking to 14 minutes, but it's nice when everything adds up because you know you'll share that document with someone, and they'll be like, this is a 93-minute interview, and your sessions are only 90 minutes. So I just, I just try to preempt that level of feedback so people will look at, the, look at the actual questions, and I make sure everything adds up. I never run the interview like this. This is a pre-visualization a- activity. This is the platonic ideal of what the interview could be. But by writing it up and, and sort of you know, scripting it and thinking about how it's going to flow, I ensure that it's cover- everything is covered based on what we know, which is not everything that's going to come up, um, so it's interesting for me to think about planning as a way to be prepared to be flexible. 
So there's this interesting kind of dynamic between the two. So I encourage you to plan in great detail and then be prepared to set that aside and kind of be in the moment and, and react. And, and, and being familiar with this document that you've prepared will set you up to have many different kinds of interviews as the people that you are meeting with turn out to sort of present that opportunity to you. You can do lots of other things besides ask questions. Here's a few. These are things you can include in your plan. Um, you can uh, ask people to demonstrate things. You can ask them to help you participate in it. So think about show me how you do something versus show me how I should do something. And there's no, I don't have a rule that says, always use the first one in this situation, always use the second one in another situation. I just want you to have a really broad palette to draw from. And, thinking, and even thinking about those nuances, if you ask somebody to demonstrate their behavior versus you ask them to teach and explain their behavior, those are different ways to unpack and kind of get at what maybe people can't articulate as naturally. You need as many different tools as possible to try to delve into the hidden stuff. So that's, that's why all these exercises can kind of get thrown in here. Um, something else you can do in the field uh, is show people stuff. And this often gets described as test our prototype. No, 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 no. The prototype is an artifact that you make internally for whatever approvals and design reviews and so on. That is your own private business. Don't take that out into the world. Make a thing for people to react to that serves to expose the issues and topics that you want to get feedback on, including, as the silly example here suggests, making things that don't represent anything that you would ever make or that could be made, but that surface you know, issues that you want to get a discussion about. So, um, you know, are people have fear of hearing loss or, uh, you know, of eyesight and manipulating increasingly smaller uh, uh, tangible user interfaces, whatever that is, create a ridiculously small phone and then talk to people about, well, what's the use experience going to be like with that? You're not testing that thing. You're exploring with a stimulus, with a prompt. Uh, oh, here's mock-ups, right? We, we, uh, we were having a conversation about newsletters that come with your credit card statement. Um, oh, this, is, this is kind of funny. The, uh, so a graphic design agency made these for my client. They handed them to me to take out into the field. Um, and so uh, there was copy on the front and on the inside. And in the back, they used Greek, Greek text, lorem ipsum, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, and this woman, she had a really smart response that sort of, you know, I think shamed me or shamed, should, have, should have shamed the client. She said, uh, she flipped it over, she goes, oh, this is so smart that it's in different languages as well. <laughs> so it's kind of like your prototype is showing, right? The, the thing, you know what some of these things signal, but other people don't. You end up getting feedback on that. So it's kind of another indicator. Don't test your mock-ups. Do something very specific. Here's one where... Um, we were testing a projection TV, uh, like an actual projector. Um, and so we created something that was experienceable. And uh, my client checked that, that box into the, into the checked luggage. And we went on a flight from, uh, he went, flew from Oregon to Denver, Colorado. And when he took it out of, the, out of the baggage claim, like the audio didn't work. And so we're driving around in the field and he's like borrowing screwdrivers. It was some like you know, crazy set of parts that they had built this thing together. You tried to fix it. We were never, never able to fix it, so we ended up testing just the video. We, we kind of made it work. We said, describe the qualities that the audio should have 
based on the experience of the video. So it was kind of a workaround. But it, as long as there was something people could experience, we could have a conversation about the thing and the experience, not the idea. And we had all the, we, they wanted to know about all these different qualities of it. But what we did was put it in front of them and let them, we showed some movie, we showed something from like, I think one of the Star Wars movies, and then we just, we didn't even say anything. We just let them start talking. Rather than our list of questions, their choice of how to respond without any direction from us sort of bubbled up what the most important topics were. So rather than me saying, of the 18 things I've just asked you about, which is the most important, they told me in a kind of a low-effort way. Uh, you can do things before you go to, to meet with somebody and afterwards. You can uh, you know, give them things to fill out have them save up stuff. Uh, we've had people save up their wine bottles that they've finished with. Uh, we bring them things to kind of provoke a conversation. We'll give them exercises to do what's in your wallet, take me through your fridge. Um, I think sort of the meta point here is like, you can take a photograph of Steve's list of things here, which is good, but you can make these up. I mean, these are things that research people make up all the time. There's sort of an ever-increasing library out there in the world, but there's not some sort of perfect set of these things. So make them up. You know, take an exercise that you read about on somebody's blog and kind of hack it to fit for your study or just try things. This was a thing that we uh, made up. And I mean, I, just by putting it on a slide and giving it a title is just kind of ludicrous. So calling it a casual card sort is a bit aspirational. Putting logos on cards, and these aren't even cards, right? This is just uh, regular printer paper. Um, and cutting them up, and you can see how nicely we did the cuts on this. Um, it's just a way to talk to somebody and have things. Like, here's a bunch of different uh, products out there. You know, talk to us about them. Is there some way to group them or order them? Like a really, really open-ended task. And it's just, it just gives, the, it lets you go from the verbal to the visual to the tactile and kind of move back and forth. It's another way that you can get in and kind of facilitate. And again, I made this up. It's not particularly brilliant, but it works quite well. All right, I'm going to shift gears again. Um, something else to look for besides what you see explicitly. Um, oh, I do have something interactive. All right. Uh, is, is culture. It's kind of what are the rules, what are the norms and I don't mean normal in a judgmental way. I mean normal as what keeps us from doing things? What sort of dis defines what acceptable behavior is? Um, so here's a, a, a photograph of people wearing, um, what was gridiron the word that we would use here to describe the football that they have where I'm from? So that kind of football. Here's some football fans or guys in football shirts eating a very large, uh, American might call it a hoagie sandwich or a submarine sandwich. Uh, anyway, what's this an advertisement for? Bring it on, it says. Subway? No. No one's going to get this, but anyway, keep going. Quiznos. It's not Subway or Quiznos, but okay. Fear? What? Oh, beer. Okay. It's an ad for fear. Bring it on. <laughs> Jenny Craig. Yep. It, what was that? Super Bowl? All right, uh, this is an ad for a, uh, a low-flow toilet. <laughs> yes, right? Awful. Thank you, Steve. You jerk. Um, yeah, can't unsee that, right? Well, that's advertising doing its job. It, you guys had that reaction, which the advertisers knew. That's gross. We don't talk about toilets in terms of what toilets do, which is sort of a strange idea. It's a product you have to market without talking about what it does and 
what his inputs and outputs are, and so on. Um, so here's big guys eating a lot of a lot of food. We know there's going to be you know a lot of work for this toilet to do later on, and the toilet is up for the challenge. So there's a social norm there that says like we don't talk about this, and here I am breaking that social norm in front of you by talking about it and talking about talking about it. These are things to pay attention to when, when norms are violated, either through the ideas that you bring forward or, or things you just see in the culture or in the environments that you go into. If you go into workplaces, you see signage, you see, you know, clean out the fridge, you see how meetings are being held. If you're doing, you know, like enterprise-type work, there's a lot of social norms and, that, that define corporate culture. This is not in your interview. This is not in your logs. This is not in any sort of toolkit that you create to be in the field. It's a, it's, a, it's a sensitivity and sensibility you have to have to understand what some of these rules are and kind of look for them out in the world. All right, I'm switching back to the tactical. There's a version of this document on the, um, on the resources page for my book. Uh, here's a, a, a shot list, a little prep guide you can make when you go out in the field. Photos. Here's, I'm going to do the old guy thing. Back in the day, we went out with uh, film cameras and so we could take, like, at most, like, 36 photos, and then we had to wait to get them developed, right? Like, I, I did start back in that, in that era, and now, of course, we have, you know, infinite capacity, relatively speaking, to take pictures. Pictures are amazing. You see things in the photos that you didn't see at the time. Um, so, yes, you can sort of aim at something interesting and shoot that, but you can also just shoot and then look at it later. It's the best artifact for telling the story back to somebody else. Right? And I'm sure you've seen people do this. They'll get their devices out and sort of tell you a little narrative about what happened uh, in some kind of field session. Um, so just do that. Obviously, you don't walk into some environment where you're doing research and like put a camera in somebody's face and start snapping. You have to kind of start asking permission and establish that as, as being okay. Uh, and then this, this document here is a, is a little guide you can make. When you send other teams out, give them this guide so that they know what pictures they should come back with. Uh, another tactical thing that I think is pretty important here is uh, you need to do a recording, whether it's audio or video, of what is being said. If you like to take notes because that helps you make sense of what's happening, and probably some people are doing that now because it's helping them listen and think about what I'm saying, that's great. But your notes and what they actually said are massively different, and you absolutely need the recording. You need the details. Because when you come back and say, oh, yeah, he didn't really like how this thing worked, and then you have a quote that says, it's frustrating. Like that, you've lost everything. You need to go back and get that nuance, that specific, specific, specific detail. And by the way, you cannot humanly take uh, you know, sufficient. You can't. I'm speaking too fast for anybody to take notes. Let alone try to run the interview, maintain eye contact, think about what questions to ask next. It's just. It's cognitively impossible. All right. I'll talk. So that was sort of the first section. Let me talk about field work very quickly. I'm just going to give kind of an overview of it. Um, yeah, I'm going to skip a couple of things here. Um, and. There's some nice overlap with what Denise was talking about, right? Sort of letting go of what you're holding on to and, and embracing things that you might hear. Um, so two tactical things to help you be ready to hear something new, different from what you assumed the world was like. Go to the bathroom and get some food. Like, it's very simple, but if you're thinking about your body, you can't be present with that person. So, you know, eliminate that by eliminating. Oh, that's good. Somebody tweet that too, right? I'm just, these are just coming up as we go, right? 
This, this is like the bonus part of the talk. Um, and then this is more subtle, but I think this is really important. And this is, by the way, why you don't interview friends, because you can't ask them questions you know the answer to. It's very, very hard to do that. If you are interviewing your neighbor and you know your neighbor was uh, on holiday and one of your questions is, uh, when's the last time you took a holiday? You just, you sound like you've, in your head, you sound like an idiot. You need to have some, you need to let yourself be authentically curious and not know to do the interview. Um, but also, there are things that you think are true for everybody. So asking someone what day their taxes are due uh, is a question that people don't, maybe they shouldn't, they shouldn't ask because, of course, I might look like an idiot because that person will think I don't know when taxes are due, right? And I don't know how it works here. You know, American taxes, there's actually extensions. There's, there are some other circumstances. It's not just a universal answer. Um, so being able to feel comfortable saying, like, hey, and when are your taxes due? And not sound like you're faking it or you're pretending you don't know or you're tricking them, but just to cultivate that sense of actual curiosity, which, again, you can't do if you looked after their cat when they were on holiday. There's a thing that happens in the interview. You go from question, answer, question, answer, question, answer, question, story. It's almost like this magic turning point. I don't know when it'll happen. It may take two seconds. It may take 45 minutes. You want to get to that story point. There's nothing that you can do except kind of be patient and, st- and do all the listening. And Denise laid out how to be an interviewer in her talk really, really well, and we, we practiced it. So there's a lot of those principles there. Um, look for that moment. And when, when it isn't maybe always an actual transition, but sometimes I'll have that realization like, oh, hey, we're in story mode now. Like, here we go. This is where I wanted to get to. Uh, so next time you notice that, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that's that thing Steve was talking about. Well done, me. You can sort of congratulate yourself. Uh, all right, here's how to go from being a mediocre interviewer to a good interviewer and a good interviewer to a great interviewer. And this is very, very difficult. This is uh, short questions and letting yourself be silent. Um, so I might, I might say to you, what did you have for breakfast today? That's kind of what my question might be. But the way the naive interviewer asks it is like this. What did you have for, uh, for breakfast today? Did you have uh, uh, toast or, or juice or maybe like some birch or muesli? Or... So uh, what, I did a couple things. I put, the quest, I put the answers in the question. And, you know, I'm thinking, like, oh, let me be helpful for him. Let me try to give him some suggestions as to what possible breakfast options would be so he'll know what it is I'm really trying to ask him because it's so elusive, apparently. Um, And then you heard that er, and people really do this. You can see the ellipsis in people's questions. And what's going on here, it's kind of like the fear that Denise talked about. There's a fear we have that when we stop talking... Some shit's going to happen, and we're losing a little control. Like, Tristan might walk out or throw his Bertram Musley at me and say, like, I'm not doing this interview, you idiot. Right? There's, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of concern there. Uh, and it's subtle. It's subtle. It's not like uh, fear of monsters. It's sort of a, a discomfort that, that holds us back. And the brave thing that you have to step up and do is say, what did you have for breakfast today? And just, and just stop yourself from saying anything else. And I think it really is a thing you have to force yourself to do because it's not natural. There's a discomfort. There's an attempt to kind of please and extend that question out there um, and really just use silence. And if Tristan doesn't understand what my question is, you know, we might take like a, 90, a really long 90 seconds and he'll say, like, I, don't, I don't know what you're asking. So I'll ask a follow-up question. Like, well, breakfast is a meal eaten before noon. Like, do you... 
You know, I, I assume that you, whatever. I would ask a better follow-up question than that. We would find our way through it. Um, and so it seems very minor, but what happens over the course of an interview is if you are giving them the framework for your question, you're training them to please you. And you'll see people kind of mirroring back your language. And it's, it seems subtle, but it, it accretes over the, the period of the whole interview. And by the end, that person is, is trying to do a good job for you. And like, they'll, they'll always respond within the suggestions that you, you give them. It's not quite a leading question, but it's the sort of subtle manipulation that, that drives how this, these interviews go. Uh, a, a quick thing here. If you want to fix something or you hear some, them not being able to solve some problem that you know they have, uh, if it's a, something about your product and they say, like, I wish there was like a video tutorial on here that would help me install it, do not say, oh, yes, there is. Lean over, type, type, type. The interview is over. You can recover from everything that I've said so far except this. Once you start fixing it, then, th- then you are the expert and they're getting the world's most expensive tech support call. And this upsets people, I think, because they don't want to leave their users, who they value, suffering. Wait till the end. There's an end. Thanks very much. This is really helpful. Here's your incentive check. Here's our release. Whatever you have to do. We're packing up. Zip, zip, zip. By the way, I saw you talking about this before. Would you like me to show you this? Or can we have somebody follow up with you? You're allowed to help them. I helped a guy fix his Windows monitors because they were... He had two monitors, and when you went on one side, the cursor came out the other side. I was... He was like, this is more helpful than the, than the incentive check that you gave me. It just, I, he was suffering in a small way. I helped him, but I did it at the end. That was kind of the thing we did out the door. Um, I'm going to skip over. Dan, you're going to talk about synthesis later. So there's, there's more on synthesis here um, that I'm going to skip here. Yeah, I think because I think, Dan, you've got that covered here. So let me stop and take questions with the rest of the time that we have. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, questions right here. Okay. Uh, you mentioned the importance of asking short questions and then following it up with silence. How do you stop that being the Spanish Inquisition, like demanding? Mm. I don't think of it that way, so I want to think about... Well, I think there's sort of staccato questions, right? Like, when did you move here? Uh, okay, so I, so I guess one technique is, uh, that we didn't really talk about is that um, like the greatest interviews, sort of this, this idealistic interview, is you ask one question and everything else is follow-up. So if you take that interview guide and you read it, then you do get the Spanish Inquisition, right? That's, and which no one expects. Um, come on, that was terrible. Don't, don't tweet that I did that. I won't be able to walk out of here. Um, so asking follow-up questions, uh, including language in your questions that transition. Uh, I want to go back to something you said before, or um, how is that different than, or earlier you mentioned that, or I want to switch topics now to something else. So you're doing a lot of handoff and sort of you know, transition management. That, and what that also does is tells them that you're listening. Like that's a huge rapport builder. So I think kind of putting that stuff on the questions will, will get away from the inquisition um, so you talked earlier about asking audacious questions and dream questions and also mentioned something about getting people to sketch like a scenario in five years' time or something like that. And when people then kind of stare at you blankly and go, I have no idea, how mm. do, do you have any techniques to, to actually make them do the mental work and actually put themselves into the mind frame where they can give you some useful answers? 
I mean, one technique is what I said, which is don't do it at the beginning because your relationship with them, if you're doing question, answer, question, answer, don't ask them to like, you know, now draw what your you know, future pet is going to look like. That's, you don't have permission to do that and you run the risk of putting them in kind of a you know, deer in the headlights moment. Um, so, I mean, sometimes we'll do things, if, if it's around sketching, I have a lot of anxiety myself about getting someone to draw. And that's usually more about me. I like when I work with someone that's like, hey, go ahead and draw this. And they'll, they'll usually kind of do it. Um, and so stuff where there's like post-its and pens and you're doing things, sometimes you can be the person. You can kind of be their note taker. Um, so I've done things where we'll have people map out their day or something. And we'll sort of put the material down and we'll see if they pick up the pen. If they don't they sort of want to talk about their day, like, you know, you like start scribbling and kind of laying things out. And then you ask them to talk about that artifact as a way, so you're flexible whether you're drawing and kind of um, capturing them versus you're kind of putting the in, in, in their piece. So I don't know, those are a couple of things. Cool. Um, so you've talked a lot today about uh, doing good research, and we had a conversation earlier um, about uh, uh, bringing clients along with you. And so a lot of the things you've talked about, they're very difficult to learn, but then in order to get your clients to consume your research, often you need to bring them along with you. Um, so do you have any tips for how to bring clients along with you yes. so they will consume your research but without fundamentally stuffing it up? Yeah. So on that same page I keep referencing, it's the Rosenfeld Media page for the book. There is a, uh, a handout there. It's like a one- or two-page document that is like a guide for participating in field work. So you can go read that more later. It, it basically describes what the role of the what I call the second interviewer is. So And, and I'll usually... Uh, you know, so I've written that. I'll share it with them. Then we'll have a meeting to talk through what they do. People often say, like, we want to go with you, Steve, but we just want to be a fly on the wall. And I say, no, no, this is a very active role, but it's, it doesn't mean you're asking a lot of questions, but you should be thinking about all the questions. Um, so I talk to them about what to wear, how to ask open-ended questions, how the, the two of us are going to negotiate when it's their turn to ask questions. Um, so I try, to, I try to set them up to be successful at it. Um, and that that's a thing that they want, that they're paying me for. So they, they're kind of valuing that. Um, yeah, I think that's, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Check out, check out that Rosenfeld Media book page. It's a guide to participating in field work. Thank you very much, Steve. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, guys. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from New York's Australia 2016. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.